0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We tend to undervalue creating only for ourselves and overvalue creating for a huge audience. But your audience of one will be there every day when you wake up. If you think that you'll step it up only when the audience is larger, the audience paradoxically, paradoxically won't get any larger. The ultimate paradox of creative work is that what you create for an audience of one is much more likely to reach an audience of millions. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com. We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
3: Welcome to the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. My name is Matt Monroe, and for about the next hour or so, I'll be your host. I will be your guest host as I talk with Srini Rao, the regular host of this podcast and the author of the just-released book, An Audience of One. Now, Srini and I are going to cover a wide range of subjects. We'll talk about his background, various life lessons learned, both as a podcaster and as an author. But we're going to spend a majority of this podcast talking about his new book, The Subject Matter, its content, and the research that went into it. And then we're going to outline some actionable steps that you can take to improve your own creative process. Now, as a heads-up this is going to be a very free-flowing conversation, and we're going to head down a few rabbit holes, okay? Um, Srini and I always have great conversations in private, and I want this podcast discussion to be an extension of our private chats. So, Srini, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. Thanks. It's good to uh, be here, and it's a little weird to be <laughs> Yeah, you know, being welcome to
0: your own podcast.
3: Well, this is actually the second time we've chatted. So mm-hmm. we talked before when you had uh, why only is better than best. And when I look at an audience of one, I see that as a natural extension of that first book. But at the same time, I also see it as an improvement on that book. I think it clarifies a lot of the subject matter it contains. Um, I think it hits harder on the points that need to be hit upon. I also think it takes away from some of the some of the distractions that might have been contained within. Yeah. Before deep diving into the book, though, I want to ask you two questions. Question number one What social group did you belong to when you were in high school? And question number two What social group are you a member of now? Okay. Yeah. So I think
0: in high school, I would say that I belong to multiple social groups. Uh, the first being primarily band. Band was a huge part of my life. I was in band uh, all four years that I was in high school. In fact, I attribute a lot of my creative discipline to the fact that I was in band because I spent from third through ninth grade in Texas and I had music teachers who had for some strange reason taken it up on themselves to make me their project. Uh, I had a seventh grade band director the day that I picked up the instrument he said you're going to make all state band someday. I don't know why he said it but that really motivated me to have somebody believe that right off the bat And he kind of gave me two alternatives. He said, you could be average as an athlete or you could be extraordinary as a musician. And that was a pretty clear choice for me because I knew that I would always be average as an athlete. I was a scrawny Indian kid in a small Texas town and if you've ever seen Friday Night Lights, you know the likelihood of my success as an athlete is going to be very low. Uh, I did play football for seventh grade. I played basketball in seventh and eighth grade. I ran track in eighth grade. And then finally, by the time I got to ninth grade, I stopped doing any sports. And band became my primary social group. The other social group that I was a part of was obviously very smart people, uh, the valedictorians, the the people who were in smart classes, people who were in AP classes. Not because I was necessarily one of them per se, but that just happened to be the group that I gravitated towards. Uh, a lot of my close friends were those types of people. Uh, so what's interesting is I quit band. I quit marching band by the time I was a senior in high school because I was so fed up with uh, going to practices. I really didn't like it. My band director in uh, Riverside tried to convince me to stay in the band. He said, what if you only have to come to practices two days a week? And I said, well, then everybody else in the band will hate my guts. So no, I'm not going to do that. Because I didn't feel that I should get any special treatment. I felt that I should just be able to quit the band. Uh, I thought it would be worse to be somebody who got special treatment because that seems incredibly ego-driven. And instead I said, and I didn't, regardless of of having to only show up twice a a week, I did not want to be in marching band anymore because I never liked marching band to begin with. I liked playing the instrument. I liked being in an orchestra. Uh, But what had also happened, the summer between my... uh, Junior year in high school my junior summer after my, my junior before my senior I did a two-week music camp at the Idlewild School of Music and the Arts and I got a dose of what it was gonna be like to be a music major in college and it, More and more I, I realized that wow, I really don't want my life to be like this If this is an indication of what it's like to be a professional musician, I, especially a professional tuba player I think I would really hate this funny enough. I still applied to college as a music major uh, to both Northwestern and to USC. And I got into USC, I didn't get into Northwestern, but my dad uh, being the person you know, intelligent person that he was, he talked me out of it. He said, I don't want you to go to USC. He said, I want you to go to Berkeley. And he made a really convincing case. He didn't try to say that this is the right thing to do. He said, I'll support whatever decision you wanna make, but I want you to hear me out. And he said, here's the deal, if you go to USC, And he said, I know you're smart enough that you're not going to bet at all on music, which I I told my dad, I said, I'm not going to just go major in music. I will double major in music and business if I go to USC. He said, if you go to USC and you want to double major, you're going to have to take 18 units a semester. And if you're a music major, you're going to be spending four hours a day in a practice room with a giant piece of metal. That was not appealing to
3: me at all. Well, let me bring it back to those social groups. Mm. Because, you know, you started off... And let's be blunt, you were a band geek.
0: Yeah, I was a band geek. Okay, That's the a best way geek. to describe
3: my social group. Yeah, band. yeah, yeah. So where are you today?
0: Well, it's interesting because being a band geek, uh, I, I wasn't the typical band geek in the sense that I saw band as this opportunity to get really, really good at something. What happened with band was that I learned about the power of practice. I learned that even if I didn't have any sort of natural aptitude or talent for something, just by doing something consistently, I could get really, really good at it, uh, to the point where I made Allstate Band three years in a row. As a freshman in Texas, I missed Allstate Band by one chair. And Texas has the best high school music programs in the country. Mm. Uh, the Interesting thing is, you know, I had a music teacher, a private lessons teacher who would not they had a structure where they had a separate band, all-state band for freshmen or se- separate all-region band for freshmen because they felt that the competition was usually too stiff. My private lessons teacher was insistent that I do not try out for the freshman band because he said one, he said there's not going to be any challenge there at all. Two, he said I'm convinced that even if you don't make all-state, you'll get to an area which is one step down from all-state and he said and that would be huge. Uh let me ask you a quick question. yeah Are you a natural
3: musician? No, I mean,
0: they're no, not. Not at all. No, no. I I the funny this is a funny story. Uh I think 3 years after I had started in man so I started out playing the trombone in 6th grade and I played the trombone for one reason. It was the only instrument that the school would provide. My parents couldn't afford to buy it So it was a card. freebie. It was a freebie. Yeah. My parents were very adamant that we don't want to invest money in a musical instrument musical instruments are expensive particularly band instruments sure and so the tr- the school provided a trombone and in sixth grade i remember this very distinctly we were in uh, one of our band classes and the band director uh asks me a question he said what are the flags on the notes for and i said well those are there for a decoration not exactly. All state band material in the making. Well, and were it was, you
3: joking, or, or no, did you not know?
0: I, I was. I didn't know. I wasn't. I was definitely the furthest thing from somebody who had the kind of discipline that would lead to where where I did. Uh, which is funny because three years later, when I was a freshman in high school, we went back and we did a tour of all the elementary schools, and we went back to that band director's school—the one who had been my sixth-grade band director—and I was a featured soloist for that
3: day. And did he remember you? Yeah, and do of you Remember the flag? Column? Yeah,
0: of course. It was really hilarious. I said, I- "I'm guessing you probably didn't expect that this is how this would turn out." Right. Uh, so that—that's the, the the social group in high school.
3: Yeah. Where are you now?
0: So I think that as far as social groups now. Uh, What's interesting is I don't know that I belong to any one social group. Uh, I'm an athlete, which is bizarre, considering where I started with athletics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm an action sports athlete, which everybody knows. Uh, I'm a surfer and an avid snowboarder. Those are kind of the two things that are... Uh, those determine almost all of my vacation and travel In- plans. Independent
3: sports. Yeah. So you're not a... Te- I, so I'm not going to make a generalization, but you're not a team player per se.
0: Yeah, when it comes to sports, absolutely right. not. I, right. I think that... I actually think there is a reason that uh, entrepreneurs and creative people are always driven towards these types of individualistic sports. Most of us are people who couldn't hack it in other sports. And the thing is that the beautiful thing about a sport like snowboarding or surfing is that there's no bar that's set where if you're having a bad day or if you're performing poorly, you cause the performance of the other people to suffer. So you and I could be skiing one day. I could be having an awful day on the mountain, falling a lot. You could be doing 20, 40-mile-an-hour runs. And
3: it doesn't, it's a, we're, we're not right. interacting. We're not interacting. We're not, not affecting each other's performance. My performance is not going to affect
0: yours. Whereas on a basketball court, if you're dragging ass, you're affecting the rest of the team. You're, right. the, weak, you're, the, mis- you're the weak link in the chain. And so... In that sense, I think that uh, board sports really kind of appealed to me. So that's one social group. Obviously, another social group is the fact that I'm surrounded by creative people. I am an artist. So I think that I've gone from being part of sort of band geeks and smart people to this very multi-hyphenate social group. And what's funny is the one really, really good friend that I have from band— I didn't reconnect with until almost 20 years later after we graduated from high school and I reconnected with him as a byproduct of the work that I've done here on unmistakable creative. And I was recently the best man in his wedding. Oh, wow. So that's, that's the social group situation.
3: So I'm going to go down two rabbit holes really quick. Um, and this is a real detour. You said that you think a lot of entrepreneurs have an attraction to the independent sports. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's be honest. A lot of entrepreneurs fall into that geeky spectrum. They do. You yeah. know, they weren't captain of the football team. They weren't. You know, the soccer star, or whatever. They might have been plugging away at you know their trash eighty computer if they're old, or if yeah. they were younger, they were you know doing HTML in high school. Um, what's the what is the progress from being that geek in high school or that geek in college to hey, independent sports are kind of cool? Well. And this is a rabbit hole. I'm taking a complete detour.
0: I think the thing that you have with individual sports, other than the fact that obviously you don't cause somebody else's performance to suffer when you suck, Mm -hmm. is the fact that when you do them consistently, you can get better at it. And those sports, for some reason, offer a lot of life lessons and learning lessons that translate to other areas of your life. I don't think it's a coincidence that my writing journey and my surfing journey are parallel almost to the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've, I've strongly believe that these activities tend to be hotbeds of creativity and innovation because of the way they force you to think or not think, for that matter. Or to
3: think independently. Yes,
0: exactly. I, I think that that is the big draw to them. It, it's that you really, I think what it is, is that you get to see progress. You get to see yourself getting better. And I can tell you, it, it took a long time before I got comfortable on the mountain. Uh, you know, I tried a, for a bunch of times when I was younger. I couldn't get the hang of it. But well, what I realized was that I didn't give it enough time to get good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that lesson of if you give something enough time and work at it continually, you will start to see progress has not been lost on me. That's, I think, applied to virtually every single thing that I've
3: done going forward. Okay. Um, I want to throw a quote at you, and I love this. I found this on Twitter the other day, yeah. and I think it relates to your change in social groups. And the quote is, your content determines your tribe. Mm-hmm. Basically, what you're putting out, your creative output, that determines the people who are going to be attracted to you. And you, know, t- you talked about your social group now being creatives. Mm-hmm. That seems to me to be a natural output of your content. Yeah. Yeah. And that also relates very directly to your book, an audience of one that I am grabbing right now. You can hear me shuffling papers around. (laughs) Um, If you would, give me the Reader's Digest version of what this book is about. Okay.
0: So the Reader's Digest version really is you have hundreds of ideas that you're exposed to when you're listening to The Unmistakable Creative from virtually every walk of life imaginable, from bank robbers to drug dealers to performance psychologists. And one of the things that I realized was that I think that it's been very easy for me to incorporate uh, the ideas that I'm learning into my life because I'm so close to them and I'm being forced to absorb them multiple times. Once when I record the interview, once when I edit, once when I listen. Because I used to edit every every podcast myself, Mm -hmm. and to this day I still think that was one of the best things I could have done. Sure. And what I realized that this book does was take all of the best advice I'd ever gotten and distill it into actionable steps that people can actually apply to their lives combined with my own insights from my own creative practice. So a combination of my own insights that have led to all of my work along with insights from many of our our most popular guests in the areas of performance psychology, in the areas of habit formation, uh, behavioral science, and how you could apply all of that and combine it together to drastically increase your creative output and also create in a way that is rewarding and fulfilling at the same time.
3: So I'm going to have you read a quote, and this is from the introduction in the book. And... I think it explicitly explains the concept behind audience of one. Mm -hmm. I want you to read starting here where I've highlighted and then jump to that second paragraph above. Got it. We tend to undervalue creating only for ourselves and overvalue
0: creating for a huge audience. But your audience of one will be there every day when you wake up. If you think that you'll step it up only when the audience is larger, the audience paradoxically, paradoxically won't get any larger. The ultimate paradox of creative work is that what you create for an audience of one is much more likely to reach an audience of millions.
3: And that kind of follows through with the idea that your content creates your tribe. Yeah. You create. You have a creative vision. You put together your art, whether it's writing, whether it's sculpture, photography, it doesn't matter. As long as you're focusing on creating works that satisfy you, Mm -hmm. eventually there could be other people where that work resonates with them. And that's going to draw them in naturally. And eventually, you know, whether it's social media, other viral effects, as long as you're putting that out there to the world while creating for yourself, your tribe will naturally be drawn in.
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely think so. I think you really kind of hit the nail on the head with this idea of, of satisfying yourself. I've always said that if you're not excited about your own work or you don't look at your own work and are not pleased with it, it's a really tall order to expect that somebody else will be.
3: Here's a real quick question for you. Is it better to be happy or is it better to be satisfied? Because they are they're two different things. That's a tough
0: one. Uh, I don't know that I have a set answer for that. Uh, it, I, I think that happiness is one of those things that fluctuates based on what's going on in your life. I, I think that we have this idea based on the fact that we live in a world where we consume tons of personal development content, uh, like this podcast even. Yeah. Uh, where this default narrative almost becomes that I'm supposed to be on cloud nine, peak performance at every moment of the day. I'm crushing it. I had a listener once who emailed me and said, I am really sorry, I have to stop listening to the interviews because they're actually making me unhappy. And I wasn't surprised by that. And I'll tell you why I wasn't surprised by that. Uh, years ago, when prior to, to rebranding as Unmistakable Creative, when I had first started doing some work with Greg, we were talking about the reference group that I have in terms of what my filter is for success.
3: The reference group. Oh.
0: Well, so basically tribe or what do you mean? So tribe is different than a reference group. Okay. So reference group is basically your peers that you compare yourself to. Oh, so okay. for example, we had a woman named Sasha Hines here as a guest, uh, who's a PhD in psychology. She's from, you know, the, the happiness uh, research program at Penn, mm-hmm. which she describes as a happiness Olympics because it literally kind of is like literally every <laughs> happiness researcher who you've ever read a book by came out of that program but the thing is that it, here's what happens is you have this goal for example in this case getting a book a deal uh, and once you accomplish the goal when prior to accomplishing the goal your reference group is all the other people who've never gotten a book deal once you accomplish the goal your new reference group is people who are published authors so suddenly the goalpost for what success looks like changes so the happiness is a relative thing based on whatever your current situation is and uh, back to, to tie it back to the listener who wrote in and said, made that comment, I understood why he said that because when I talked to Greg about this, he said, you know, your version of reality, he said, your filter for what success looks like is wildly skewed because of the fact that your entire worldview is determined based on the people that you interview. Mm-hmm. And they're all outliers. They are. And it was really hard to get my head around that because for the longest time, I did not see the people that I interviewed as peers. Um, how did you view them as people who had accomplished something i didn't uh and i think that's changed but it's still something i wrestle with it is still because that when that is the lens through which you see the world imagine if that you, literally every one of these people has accomplished something truly extraordinary and if i said that i had to accomplish everything that every single one of my guests has that's a recipe for a real disappointment and a lack of fulfillment because some of what they've accomplished is far beyond what I'm capable of doing. And vice versa, probably.
3: I would I would jump in with the vice versa. I'm going to play amateur psychologist here sure. for a second. You're a published author. Mm-hmm. How many books have you put out? Well, this is two. Okay. These are two published books along with a very successful ebook mm-hmm. along with several what, e-short books or whatever. Sure. You have a successful podcast. I mean, I can Google Srini Rao, yeah. and I'm going to find, what, four or five or six pages on Google.
0: Yeah, I, I, the point being...
3: I You, you have to... a level of, of success that, you know, 99.9% of the population would go, oh, yeah, he's a successful guy.
0: Sure. And again, like I said, the, the thing is that, yes, we're talking about 99.9% of the population, but when your reference group is not that... Right, up, the outliers. When your reference group is the outliers. So why, when that listener wrote in and said that, it wasn't surprising to me. I didn't find it offensive. I, I said I understand. I could see why. It, it's really weird because sometimes reading about other people's success actually makes you feel worse about yourself.
3: I would agree. I would agree. I, I, I'm going to just jump in with my own personal comment. I don't think of myself as a happy person, mm-hmm. but I do think of myself as a very satisfied person. Yeah. And the difference is, you know, I'm not the kind of guy to be, you know, jumping around like yee-haw, but I am the kind of guy to look at the work that I do, whether I'm doing the photography work, audio recording, whatever, put in the hours, grind away at Photoshop or lighting, and walk away from a project and say, yeah, I did a good job. Mm-hmm. And I might not be happy that I stared at Photoshop for six or seven hours, sure. but I do feel satisfied with the end results. Yeah. And in the end, that's the key. You have to, you have to think of what the end results are and not maybe the shit you're going through during the process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that it's interesting because if you look at many of the the sort of accomplishments, often when we have people on the show, people think that a, a book deal or this moment in the spotlight is is the the greatest moment. But the reality is that that is such a small fraction of any piece of creative work. An actor spends a hundred days on a set making a movie, and somebody who consumes the movie spends one hour watching it. Right.
1: Right. That ratio is incredible.
0: Yeah, you spend two years writing a book, a person who reads it spends two days reading it. And if everything is about that moment in the spotlight, you're missing out on so much because it's such a small fraction of what is actually involved
3: in the process of creating something. You actually talk about that in the book, and... I put the book so. Oh, there Where it you is. Jesus. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I actually had a uh, quote that I was going to have you read from in which you talk specifically about that. Let's see if I can find it. Hmm. Why don't you just riff on that for a second while I try to find that actual yeah. quote? Yeah, well,
0: this is something that became apparent to me the the more that I got involved in this process uh the more that I, I did I did creative work, the more that I it, particularly when it came to writing, I started to see that the overwhelming majority of my time when it came to being a writer was spent out of the spotlight with nobody paying attention and nobody holding me accountable to do what I'm supposed to do. I had deadlines from a publisher, but those deadlines are six, seven months out from when you start. You basically are told, great, get to work, and you're staring at a blank Google Doc. And that's hours on end by yourself sitting quietly in a room. And I genuinely enjoy that part of this. I think that if you don't enjoy that part of this, it's going to be very, very painful because one, that moment in the spotlight is a small fraction. And two, if you have expectations of that moment in the spotlight and it fails to live up to those expectations, then it will feel as if all of it was for nothing,
3: I'm gonna actually have you read from a quote that uh, is in line with exactly what you just said. Start there, it continues on to the next page. Okay.
0: If you see your creative work as a chore, an obligation, or solely as an item to cross off your to-do list, the work will feel that way to you and anybody who interacts with it. On the other hand, if you see your work as a gift, a privilege, an opportunity to share the truth of what's in your heart with the world, that's the experience you'll have with it. Same work, different
3: perspectives. Same work, different perspectives. I want to start deep diving into the book just a little bit, and uh, obviously I have quite a few notes here, which we can't get to (laughs) because I have way too many notes. Just a comment on my part, um, in going through the book, I think there are three main topics that are covered, and we've talked about this before. The book is about attention, where do you put your attention, what is capturing your attention, and, and also what is taking away your attention. Intention, that is, what is your intent? Even if you don't have specific goals, what is the end result and what is the process that you go through in getting to the end result? And then lastly, consumption. And consumption can be consumption of social media, but can also be it can be consumption of food. I mean, yeah. you and I just had coffee and donuts. Donuts.
0: Well, we did go eat something healthy before, and those donuts were a real letdown. Yeah, and
3: I, I, just, I did 25 push-ups on the sidewalks of San Francisco, <laughs> um, had a small crowd for that. But yeah. but in the end, you know, what you put into your body, what you put into your brain, what, into your, what you put into your stomach also has an effect.
0: Absolutely.
3: Let's start with the concept of attention and where you put your attention. Talk to me, talk to the audience about the importance of attention and maintaining focus and also removing distractions. Okay.
0: Well, the first thing I think we we have to understand about attention is that Almost all time management issues are attention management issues, uh, pretty much across the board. I've seen this after talking to hundreds of people after my own experience with this. I know for a fact that if you can manage your attention, if you can have intense focus even for one hour on one thing, your productivity goes through the roof. Uh, Of course, you have a thousand different things that are competing for your attention, but so let's talk first about dealing with how you manage your attention. I think at the core of, you know, distraction more than anything or dealing with distractions is reducing the volume of input because mm-hmm. everything about attention comes down to how much input can you take in and how much can you process. So basically if you want to increase your attention span, you just reduce the number of things that are competing for it. Now. When we had Adam Ghazali here, we talked about the neuroscience of attention. Uh, he, I don't think, went as deep as I finally did with his book. I, I started to really tease this apart. But what I realized is that for any one of us at any given time, we have three types of input that are competing for our attention. There's visual input, there's auditory input, and there's kinesthetic input. Visual input is obvious. It's literally anything that you can see, from you know notifications on your computer to the books on your desk to the coffee that's here, to the laptop screen, to everything. And Adam had a really interesting
1: uh,
0: uh, quote in his book. I don't remember the exact words, but he said, literally get rid of everything that is not relevant to whatever it is that you're trying to do. And effectively what he's telling you is to reduce the visual input down to the one thing that matters. So when you use a distraction blocker like rescue time, for example, what you're effectively doing is you're reducing visual input in the digital form. Uh, by not allowing notifications, by not allowing yourself to browse. We'll talk about sort of the habitual checking in a second because that also plays a role here. Right. But you reduce your visual input. The next piece of this is reducing auditory input. Now, most people, depending on what their situation is, might have kids screaming in the house. They might have TVs on. And... The way you reduce auditory input, for me at least, and the one that I found effective and it seems pretty consistent across many of the prolific creators that I've talked to, is to use noise cancellation headphones and use music to do it. Uh, If you use music, depending on the nature of your work, if you're working with your hands or if you're doing design work or if you're somebody who's a craftsperson, you can actually use music that has lyrics. The The rule for music, I think it's not a hard and fast rule, but my, my filter is, okay, if the work that you're doing requires verbal processing, for example, reading and writing, then you should have music that doesn't use lyrics. If on the other hand, you're doing work that doesn't require verbal processing, for example, like painting or sculpting, you can listen to music with lyrics. But the whole point of music is that it drowns out all the other sound. And if you look talk to most people what they'll do is they'll take one track and they'll put it on repeat and it puts you into this trance almost. So as a result you've effectively gotten rid of visual input and you've reduced your audio input down to a handful of things. Uh, So for example when it comes to visual input I use distraction free writing tools and I work in full screen mode. So if you work in full screen mode, James Clear actually was the one who came up with that, uh, the full screen mode thing. It was either James Clear or one of the co-founders of Buffer where I saw that. And what I realized was that this was so brilliant because when you are working in full screen mode in any app, it literally forces you to single task. In fact, I've been wanting to figure out how to build a tool. That forces you to single task by using full screen mode. I don't know anybody who can build it, but if somebody does, I'd like them to write me because I want to get it built for my own needs.
3: Have you checked to see if singletask.com has been taken or not?
0: I, I haven't, but <laughs> I, I should. we'll do that after this interview. Yeah. So I so that that's you know we're talking about visual input. The audio input is obvious. The kinesthetic input is the sort of more nebulous one because that's how you feel, right? Whether the room is too hot or whether it's too cold, whether you're thirsty, all of that. It's just how you feel. Because all of those inputs are effectively competing for your attention. Now, if you think about it, the average person, let's just look at visual input. Imagine you have five browser tabs open, you have messages coming in through your inbox via email, you have Facebook Messenger open, and then you have four or five different things on your desk. If you have that much visual input competing for your attention, of course you're gonna have a difficult time managing your attention. It's not a coincidence that Cal Newport has made very, very deliberate attacks on the idea of the open office because of the fact that if you have an open office, you have a large amount of auditory and visual input that is incredibly detrimental to being able to do deep work and to be able to focus and to manage your attention.
3: You know, you've just mentioned three uh, people, Cal Newport, uh, Adam Grant, Adam Gazelle. Adam Adam, Gazelle, yeah. Who are other, let's say, leaders... Spokespeople in this arena who are basically saying, hey, look, there's just too much noise in our world and we need to bring our focus back.
0: Ryan Holiday, Stephen Kotler, David Heinemer Hansen. Uh, Ryan wrote a really interesting article on Medium recently about news consumption and, and the fact that we create more news than we've ever created in our lives. Sure. Uh, that's because there just is so much happening every single day. It's kind of madness. But so much of it is not going to be relevant in about a year or two. Uh, it, it's interesting how much we think is relevant. That's not. And it made me really wonder. And then you layer on top of that the fact that we all have social media accounts where we have Instagram and Twitter and and Facebook. And you start to wonder, if you've got this much noise competing for your attention, you're never going to hear the sound of your own thoughts.
3: Which is a perfect transition to this quote from your new book, An Audience of One. Okay.
0: The paradox of technology is that the very tools that facilitate our creativity also inhibit it. How we approach and resolve that paradox is essential to our creativity. When our use of technology is not mindful and deliberate, we become its slave rather than its master. And this gradually erodes our creative capacities, attention spans, and the depth needed to create work of consequence and significance. Perfect.
3: I wanna use that as a launching point into the concept of intent. And, you know, prior to this interview, we went on a long walk and we just, you know, we shot the chat or yeah. we shit the shot or we chatted a lot while walking around. And one of the things we talked about was the concept of goals, which you're not a big fan of, but having a vision and just, a, you know, this idea that there's something you're trying to attain, yeah. a creative thing. Let's explore that for a little bit. and and, let, and I know I'm not being the most articulate person in the world right now, but the concept of why goals don't work, but having a creative vision does work yeah. and how that relates to intent.
0: Yeah, it, it's interesting, um, and I think it's funny about for you of all people to bring up the idea of goals not working, given that you yourself don't have goals. Uh, I have three goals. I know that go interesting places, meet interesting people, and do interesting
3: things. Right, and then everything in my life is it's basically filtered. is filtered through how do I meet people, yeah. go places, or do things. So,
0: I I'm not entirely opposed to goals. I'm opposed to things that we can't control. Uh, I think that what has happened as a byproduct of the world that we live in is that. We have basically artificially created status in social media. Uh, The number of fans and followers and all the things we've done have created a pecking order that is largely manufactured and pretty much an illusion because when you get out of that world, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Talk to your barista at Starbucks and they could give two shits who who I am. And that, I think, has, has caused a lot of problems. So the result of that, of course, is that we pick very arbitrary goals, and we say, okay, well, Tim Ferriss has become a New York Times bestselling author, so I want to become a New York Times bestselling author. This person has a million fans on Facebook, so I want to have a million fans on Facebook. And we put insane amounts of energy into parts of our work that we have absolutely no control over. Uh, I think that this book in particular has been that lesson for me, because I think that The amount of work that we put into the end result is way out of proportion in comparison to the work that we should be putting into the process that precedes that result. Because if you put that same effort into the process, you're going to end up creating a much better product in the end. You're going to be much more likely to attain the vision that you have in mind. Here's the reality. I can't control how many people go out and buy this book based on listening to this podcast, but I can control the effort that I put into the book in terms of writing it, in terms of reaching out to people, in terms of having conversations like this one. But in the end, whether this becomes a New York Times bestseller, whether it sells a thousand copies, whether people hate it, or whether people write me two-star reviews, none of those things are in my control. And what's interesting is that we have put a hell of a lot of emphasis and effort into things that are not in our control, not just as entrepreneurs, but as a culture. And the result of that is a level of deep dissatisfaction and unhappiness uh, because of the fact that we are not living up to some arbitrary expectation that has been created by some celebrity on the Internet that we have placed on a pedestal who in reality is nowhere as near as famous as we think they are.
3: We could do an entire podcast on that, just the concept of celebrity hierarchy. And well, if you've... Sorry, do we mean to interrupt? No,
0: no, go uh, ahead. So I, I don't remember the exact quote, but um, Alain de Botton, this guy, he was on the Tim Ferriss podcast. He wrote a book called Status Anxiety, which goes in depth about this. And it, it, how can you not have status anxiety in a world... Where every single day your status is literally quantified based on the social networks that you participate in.
3: I actually, I, I still want to explore that idea just a little bit because sure. I, so much of our society is focused on status and the distractions that come along when we're constantly updating Instagram, constantly updating Facebook, putting you know sometimes even putting out a blog post is for mm. status. Totally and. I just wonder what we're achieving with all of this.
0: Well, th- that's the real question, right, is, is are we achieving anything? I, I think about the, the fact that I get to put a picture of this book on Facebook one day mm-hmm. of the two years that I spent writing it. And what's interesting to me is that that moment, th- that moment of, of getting to put up that picture, or even the moment when the book arrives in the mail and I get to hold it in my hand, is so empty in comparison to what it represents, because what it represents is far different than that. What it represents is literally hours on end, toiling away in a room, wondering if this is even gonna strike a chord with people or, or I've lost my mind.
3: Okay, but you have to admit that when the book, when the galley showed up at your house, like- It is,
0: don't get me wrong, it's a, it's a cool feeling, but in comparison to what it truly represents and what goes into the work. Because it really, what it is is blood, sweat, and tears, not literal blood, sweat, and tears, but for anybody who does creative work or anybody who finishes something like this, that is really more than anything what they see when they finish it.
3: Yeah. You know, that's a really good launching point into the concept of deliberate practice. Yeah. And in fact, I want you to read this highlighted text that I have here in the book. Okay.
0: At the driving range or at the piano, most of us as adults are just doing what we've done before and hoping to maintain the level of performance that we reached long ago, says author Jeff Colvin. By contrast, deliberate practice requires that one identify certain sharply defined elements of performance that need to be improved and work intently on them.
3: So we've talked about this. I really like this book. Um, for the listeners out there, the audience, uh, the book is An Audience of One, available August 7th. Yeah. I see it as a vast improvement, a a natural trend from your other books, but a vast improvement over your prior books. Mm. Talk to me about the deliberate practice that went in with your writing skills, with your writing craft to create this. Yeah, It's interesting because
0: uh, even as an interviewer, so I I wanna talk about deliberate practice as an interviewer because I think it'll make a a good segue into the writing piece as well. So as an interviewer, the one thing that I have done constantly is I've always gone back Um, to what I've done and, and looked at how it could be improved. I go back and I listen to every single thing that we do more than once usually. That to me was one of the gifts that came from when I used to do the editing myself because it forced me to go back and listen. And I still go back and listen. And when I listen, I'm listening for the things that I think I did wrong or the things that I think could have been better.
3: You're not patting yourself on the back as you go along?
0: No, not at all. I'm looking for moments where occasionally I'll think to myself, damn, I should have asked a question about this. And then I'll hear myself ask the question I thought I should have asked. And I said, oh, okay, wait a minute. I actually did that. So I'm always looking for that. So I'll I'll actually give you an example Mm -hmm. uh, from a listener. And this was very, very useful feedback that i I really appreciated getting i didn't notice we because we all have verbal tics we all have things that we do repeatedly and let's shift gears well that i'm never going to stop doing apparently okay uh but There was one thing that I caught. And it's funny because now I hear other interviews do it. I've heard Tim Ferriss do it. I've I've literally heard everybody do it because this listener called me out on it. And feedback is one of those things you have to learn to, to figure out where you should listen and where you shouldn't. This listener was very kind. She said, I love your podcast. But she said, I noticed that you're saying I'm curious before every question. And what's funny is that until somebody points it out to you, you don't notice. Once they do, it's all you can hear.
3: So what's interesting about that is during our conversation here, you've said several times, well, it's interesting. (laughs) So we all have our verbal tics.
0: Exactly. And I, I noticed that, and I couldn't stop obsessing over it, and I made a deliberate effort to slow down and to stop saying it, and I noticed an immediate difference in terms of the flow of the conversation. As far as writing goes... Uh, a couple of different things go into deliberate practice. First, you have to remember that I have never stopped the one thing that I've done, which is writing a thousand words a day. Now, I've said, of course, that deliberate practice is not simply repeating something over and over. In addition to writing a thousand words a day, parts of the deliberate practice go is going is I read writers who are better than I am, uh, and I try to learn from them. I try to learn from what Stephen Pressfield does because what Stephen Pressfield does brilliantly is that he says a lot with very few words. He doesn't have to write much, but everything he says packs a punch. If you read The War of Arc, none of the chapters are long. None of the essays are long. Some of them are as short as three sentences. But those three sentences are so deliberate that you can't help but be drawn into his work. If you look at people like Amber Ray, if you look at people like Sarah Peck, if you look at people like Danny Shapiro, what they bring to the table is a rhythm to their writing that is almost musical in terms of the way they construct sentences, in terms of the way the language moves. You look at somebody like Ashley Ambridge, you learn how to create work that stands out, like truly stands out, and in a way that is distinctive. So in addition to the habit I have studied for people who I think are better than I am, just from a pure craft standpoint, I think that they possess something I don't in in a way, in that I've inherited some of it because i followed the work. I worked with a writing coach on this book as well, whose name is Robin Delabo, and she is amazing, and she's tough. She does not let me mail it in. She'll tell me if she thinks something is crap. She'll tell me if she thinks it's nonsense. Uh, She does not sugarcoat her feedback, and that's actually why I chose her, uh, specifically because I wanted somebody who would be tough. And finally, I think in addition to that, I still go back and read things that I've written Uh, whether they're, you know, blog posts or whatever, so that I can uh, get better. That is one thing that I'm not as consistent about that I probably should be. But you also have to remember, I've gotten a world-class education from every performance psychologist imaginable as a result of this project. So you add all those combinations together, you get somewhat of a a deliberate practice.
3: You know, I want to backtrack just a second. Um, And for years, you have talked about the write a 1,000 words a day as a habit. How would you start that?
0: It was the result of a conversation with a guy named Julian Smith, who oh, sure. was a guest here on this podcast and is now the founder of a venture-funded startup called Breather. Uh, he, at the time when he told me about The Habit, had one of the most popular blogs on the Internet. And I've even written about it in an audience of one. So he, I think the last book that Julian did was a book that he co-wrote with Chris Brogan, and it was called The Impact Equation. And what's funny is that if you know Julian's work, and you've read Chris Brogan, you can spot the sections right. that very Julian wrote. Very distinctive writing styles. They're very, very distinctive. Like, you can spot what sections Julian wrote. Because Julian is a very different kind of reader and writer. And it was funny. He had one of the most popular blogs on the Internet. He told me two things. I read a 1,000 words a day, and I don't read blogs.
3: And he's a blog. Yeah.
0: yeah. Not a blog. One of the most popular blogs on the Internet at the time. And I, so I, I looked at that habit. And at the time, I had three writing jobs. One was to do freelance writing for a website called Search Engine Journal, so I had to submit one article a week to them. I was uh, doing content strategy for a startup that Greg Cardle was a part of, and I was writing two or three blog posts for my own blog as well as a weekly newsletter. So that's a lot of writing. And I knew that if I basically waited to be inspired or anything like that, I'd be totally screwed. So when Julian told me about 1,000 words a day, I thought, well, this actually would probably work as a really good system to do this because inevitably I would have 7,000 words at the end of the week, probably more, and inevitably somehow what ended up happening was that I just wrote way more than I imagined. So I had enough to fill all my content requirements plus enough to end up writing a self-published book uh, that became The Art of Being Unmistakable.
3: Let me ask you this: If you didn't have that habit, what do you think your Where do you think your writing skills would be at? Even though you consider or you, you are a writer, I, mean, I you, don't.
0: I don't think they would be as good. I think that if you look at any uh, prolific writer, or for that matter, anybody who's established a career, they are all creatures of habit. They have a rhythm that they maintain. It doesn't matter what it is. It might be three days a week. It might be nine to five every day. It might be a thousand words a day. It's either you know you can count words. You can count hours. That kind of really is, is what because that allows a number of different things. One is that you have a very, very clear goal. Uh, there's no question as to whether you've hit the goal or not. And there's nothing that amplifies the clarity of a goal like putting a number in front of it. And clear goals are one of the flow triggers. And so when you have a thousand words, you're going to be much more likely to get into a flow state when you know that that's the number you're aiming for than let me just sit down and write. And Inevitably, if you get to 30, 40 minutes in, you'll blow past that 1,000 words. I have writing sessions where I might get a 1,000 words in the first 30, 40 minutes, and I can write 1,800 words in the next 25 minutes just because of what happens right. with flow.
3: For um, For the audience' sake, let's uh, just explore the concept of flow. I yeah. know Stephen Kotler, I mean, that's, that is his thing.
0: Yeah, he's kind of the go-to guy on it. Uh, if you haven't checked out our interviews with him, pure gold in terms of of the ability to to access flow. So what is flow, first of all? So flow is basically what they call an optimal state of consciousness where action and awareness merge. Uh, Basically, you lose your sense of time. You suddenly just have this this feeling of, of being completely immersed in whatever you're doing. The world around you disappears. And what's interesting is that even if it's painful, even if it's strenuous, for some reason it feels really good. Uh, If you're going 40 miles an hour down a mountain on a snowboard, your attention is right in the here and now because if you pull it out of the here and now, you're going to fall and you're going to hurt yourself really bad. But what happens as a result of this state is that your ability to produce at an elite level just gets amplified. It goes through the roof. So if I've had a day uh, in the water where I've caught 10 waves uh, because the surf is good, I will surf, there are days when I think, I was like, wow, where's the camera to capture this moment? It's like, where's Matt Monroe? Why isn't he on the beach right now? Because I'm surfing like Kelly Slater. At least I think I am (laughs) for a brief moment. Probably other people would disagree. But the same thing happens with with writers uh, or any creative person for that matter. Because what happens is you go from focus and then you shift into a state of flow. And when you shift into a state of flow, you get... According to Stephen Kotler, they say a 500% increase, not in, not just in productivity, but you get more elevated creative ideas. Virtually all aspects of performance go through the roof when you're in flow.
3: Okay. So obviously, Stephen, uh, Stephen Kotler will be the resource for the audience yeah. to check into. What are the things that create flow? And more importantly, what are the things that destroy or inhibit flow?
0: Okay, so... Basically, there are a bunch of what are known as flow triggers. And again, this is based on Stephen's work, so I want to make sure we give credit where credit is due. The first is singular focus. Focus on one thing and being able to focus on that one thing for an extended period of time. So time is another factor that plays a role in flow. I can get there. The more you do it, the faster you'll be able to get there. But on average, Stephen, I think I heard him say in an interview, said 90 minutes completely uninterrupted. That also is another thing, no interruptions, meaning you're focused on this one thing, you give it enough time to get from focus to flow, and the things that, make it, the things that derail it are interruptions. So let's say that you're in the zone, right? And you're at that 45-minute mark, you're jamming with whatever you're doing, whether it's, it's writing or painting or whatever, and you can see the work starting to come out. Well, if you suddenly do that and you shift your attention to something like Facebook or checking an email— then you're screwed because the whole cycle starts all over again. You've basically just undone everything that you did in order to get to that point. So any sort of interruption or any sort of distraction uh, is really one of the things that inhibits flow or basically kicks you out of it.
1: Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be.
0: We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
3: Perfect launching point for this quote from you on monotasking.
0: Okay, so try to monotask to improve your focus and attention make a to-do list of all the things you'd like to get done today including high-value creative work like writing, painting or taking photos on your list. Also include updating your status on Facebook, responding to emails and uploading pictures to Instagram. You'll find you're able to get everything on your list done faster when you're only working on one of them at a time.
3: So I have to I have to admit I was very surprised when you included, you know, Facebook ups, updates, Instagram. I mean, why include the distractions on a to-do list?
0: Well, here's the thing. I think that if you are used to using these tools on a regular basis uh, that's like somebody who smokes a pack a day trying to quit tomorrow and expecting that they're going to basically be completely free. It's unlikely if you're that addicted to something which we all
3: are myself included. No social media is an addiction. It is. It's a dopamine trigger and we're all chasing that dopamine dragon.
0: So the thing is if you schedule your time for these things um, the, and there's different ways to do this. So, for example, right now I use rescue time to set a goal of less than 30 minutes a day on social media. And I'm, I'm hitting it for the most part, uh, I, I think. I still feel that it's a lot of time that I'm spending on social media despite 30 minutes a day. And, and the other question you have to ask yourself is, is it, like you said, what are we actually accomplishing? Is this one of the things that adds a significant amount of value to your life? And so often it's not. It's just a form of mild entertainment that not only doesn't add value, it disconnects you from the world around you.
3: Yeah. You know, I actually want you to read something that you wrote on social fasting mm-hmm. because, one, it's interesting. Two, it's an experiment I would never have thought of uh, starting up. Okay. You have your day one and your day two social experiment. Yeah, okay. Quit
0: social media for one entire day. Use a tool like Rescue Time to block all distracting websites. The next day, spend as much time as you possibly can on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Check your email every time you're tempted to. While you're at it, make sure you have all your notifications on your phone turned on. And the reason I wanted people to do that is I wanted to show them, I want them to get a sense for the contrast between the two types of days because until you understand the contrast, I don't think you'll really get the value of taking time off and blocking distractions because the contrast is stark. I can tell you I've had days where I check email in the morning, and it's really funny because it happened to me recently. I'm not immune to any of the things that I'm telling you about. Sure, we're all addicts. We are. Hmm. And I had a day recently where I I don't remember what it was. I needed to get something from my inbox at 7 in the morning, and it was not that important. It could have waited till noon. And the whole day just went to shit from there. Um, It was multiple email checks. It was multiple social media checks. Because the thing is that that early in the morning, your brain is basically a sponge, and if the first thing you give it is this hit of dopamine, you're going to crave that all day long and keep going back more and more. You're much more likely to want more of it.
3: Absolutely true. I'm peeling a little post-it note here. I'm going to have you read from your book again, because this is a natural launching point into the concept of consumption. Mm You know, we're all consuming social media, we're all consuming information, we're all consuming, well, you and I were consuming coffee and donuts not too long ago. <laughs> yeah. And you have to make the decision on what are you going to consume? What are you going to put into your body? What are you going to put into your mind? I want you to actually read the part about what you put into your stomach, okay. but then let's draw some analogies on what you put into your head.
0: Okay. So is this from the health and nutrition section? Yep. Okay. So, as I was writing this section, the 2016 holiday season had just wrapped up. During the week prior, we had a house full of kids and enough desserts to send a small village into a diabetic coma. My dad informed me that we had gone through four industrial-sized bags of cheese and 100 tortillas in just a few days. Meanwhile, my creative output came to a halt. By New Year's Day, my body was basically saying, please stop doing this to me. That night, I had a salad for dinner and went to sleep by 9 p.m. This section, which I had been struggling with, finally started to come together.
3: So... To me, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, they're all, you know, it's white bread, it's donuts. Yeah, it's It's, the
0: junk food of digital content.
3: It is. It is the junk food of digital content. And we're chasing after it for that dopamine hit to get that thumbs up, that like, that, ooh, I got a mention of my name. Yeah. But in the end, none of this shit will matter, you know. Yeah, I
0: mean, nobody's going to put the number of total likes that you've got throughout the course of your life on facebook or on your
3: tombstone yeah Yeah. which would be an awesome tombstone by the way
0: (laughs) this guy has x number of followers this many likes and this many retweets
3: all right so how do we fight these addictions because they are addictions
0: well i think that you have to start by uh actually having time where you don't use these things every day um And to me, that's one of the big reasons I choose the morning as my time not to use these tools. Like, I don't use devices first thing in the morning. I, for this reason, still read physical books. Um, I still write by hand very often, even though my handwriting is illegible. That's the the challenge with this part. But I, I think that we were never meant to start our days with this flood of information, which is how most people start their days. When you roll over and check your phone first thing in the morning, you're doing yourself a great disservice. So I think that it's a matter of saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to have this small part of the day where I don't use these things. Now, I'm able to do an hour to two hours. That's because I've practiced. If that sounds really far-fetched to most people, then I think that you should, as James Clear once said, reduce the scope but stick to the schedule. Try 15 minutes. If you can get through 15 minutes, that's progress. The goal, and then keep upping it every day, I think the other thing that I, you know, I believe in is uh, turning off these things at a certain point in the day for good. Uh, after about 8 o'clock, I try not to turn have my phone turn on. So people will text me after 8 o'clock, and sometimes they get annoyed that I don't respond. But I've, I've told people that this is my default rule. I don't want devices on. And look, like I said, I'm not immune to any of the things that I'm claiming. Like I still fall victim to this. So, for example, last night I fell asleep with my laptop in my bed because I was tired. And I knew I was flying out here this morning and I wanted to watch a movie and I didn't want to do it in the living room. I wanted to watch it so I could fall asleep quickly. And that's an exception, not the norm. But I think that part of it means, part of it is saying, okay, you know what, I'm going to make a deliberate choice. I think that the other thing you do is is you spend time away, uh, whether that's doing exercise in a gym or uh, going out in nature somewhere. You have to find situations that force you to unplug. Uh, I think that, The more that I think about it, I don't disagree with all the arguments that Cal is making for why people should quit social media. I think many of them are, like, dead on, and most people are starting to see that. Uh, It's interesting because if you look at a lot of the people who produce a high volume and quality of creative output, you'll – and it's interesting. One of the things I recommend people do is go and look at the social media feeds of people like Ryan Holiday um, and people like Stephen Kotler who have written multiple New York Times bestselling books and compare their feeds to people you know who are incredibly active on social
3: media. Like Kim Kardashian or whomever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I want to take a quick little detour here because I found this quote, and I love it. And it basically talks about the idea that creativity is therapy. Mm. And I firmly believe that. I can have the shittiest day in the world, but if I go out there with my camera and I get that one shot, my day is completely turned around yeah so let me have you read starts here and continues to there okay
0: creativity it turns out doesn't just contribute to our happiness but also to our mental and physical health expressing ourselves creatively is a form of self-care in many ways it gives us the opportunity for self-reflection and as we build our creative skills we build confidence many therapists even prescribe creative expression to their patients for healing purposes
3: So I want to get a little personal with you. Sure. And you've written about this. We've talked about this. You have had waves of depression.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
3: So how did did creativity get you out of that?
0: Well, I think that when you live a a creative life, it's inherently uncertain in a lot of different ways. Um, You have financial uncertainty. You have relationship uncertainty. You have the uncertainty of what your career is going to look like. And I think that when you do something creatively on a consistent basis, it gives you what Jonathan Fields refers to as a certainty anchor. It's one thing you can come back to over and over again. So having this one thing, this practice, this anchor, is a really effective way to reduce your anxiety because you know that you have this one thing to look forward to every single day. No matter what happens, as long as I get to do this one thing, it's been a worthwhile day in my mind. Uh, I think that's, that's one component of it. But this isn't just based on my experience. There's research to back this up. So James Pennebaker, who's a professor at UT Austin, uh, this is some of the research we did for the book, he found that when he had people write about traumatic experiences, it, he found that whether it was people who had, had breakups from relationships or people who had lost jobs, many of them bounced back from the trauma a lot faster in comparison to the control group who didn't do the writing. And so that's really interesting that uh, you could actually have a, a therapeutic outcome or a healing outcome just from expressing creativity. And this, it turns out, it has been shown even in much more serious illnesses. Uh, in many places where there are cancer patients, they use uh, art therapy, where they have people who are dealing with illnesses, uh, sometimes life-threatening illnesses, actually do something creative because... Funny enough, what that does is it takes us back to the notion of attention, right? So when you do something creative in the midst of a trauma, what you're doing is you're shifting your attention from the trauma to the creativity. Now, for all you know, the creativity could be fueled by the trauma. That's how Chicago has built an entire recording career. Uh, It's true. Have you ever listened to any of their songs? Like every one of their songs is about heartbreak pretty much. I don't think I know a single Chicago song that I remember growing up that wasn't about some tragic romance.
3: Twenty-five or six to four,
0: maybe that one. All
3: right,
0: Saturday in the Park. Uh,
3: man, man selling ice cream. Yeah, huh. well, okay, okay. Fleetwood Mac, like the Rumours album, that's nothing but you know exactly. songs People about heartbreak and like f
0: you. Exactly. So, what you can do is you could take this trauma and you can channel it into something creative. And I think, in a lot of ways, the trauma of not having a job when I finished business school is largely responsible for the existence of Unmistakable Creative and everything that I've done today.
3: I would agree. And also just you know the magic year, 2009, yeah. when everyone, anyone who is creative was thinking to themselves, well, I got time. What can I make? Exactly. What can I do? Um, this is just curiosity on my part. Do you think there's a relationship between creativity and depression? You and I know many of the same people. And a lot of the creative folks out there, they suffer from depression.
0: I do. I, I think, I, I wish it wasn't the case. I really wish that those two things didn't have to coexist. There are times when I find that really annoying. Yeah. Uh, it, because it's frustrating. I mean, people who've never dealt with depression, they don't really know. And I think that you have a world in which we have life coaches and self help uh, gurus and everybody where. Medication and, and a lot of the ways in which depression is typically dealt with tends to get a really bad rap, and often that bad rap comes from people who themselves have never dealt with depression. Uh, but as far as the relationship between creativity and depression, I'm not sure why that's the case, but it seems to be both. A lot of strange sort of mental disorders, from you know uh, from ADD to depression, seem to often be correlated with high levels of creativity. Perhaps the, the reason for that is that when you have these sort of uh, neurological issues, I think what happens as a result is you have a, a set of thoughts that you wouldn't be able to access in an ordinary state of consciousness. We're talking about flow as an altered state of consciousness. So funny enough, I, actually, it makes all the sense of the world. If you look at people who are incredibly creative, uh, they're always craving an altered state of consciousness of some sort. It's why we crave flow. It's why everything in our lives is driven by an altered state of consciousness.
3: I think a lot of creatives also tend to go towards alcohol and drugs to, yeah. to get that altered state. Totally. And I don't know why. I, uh, if, it's if, as, if they view it as an escape or if they view it as an enhancement.
0: I think it really depends if you look at things like psychedelics which we can kind
3: of this is a, a real let's about. talk about psychedelics well,
0: yeah I I, I I you know kate Kate Soboda jokingly said she's so, so you know basically you're doing all of this experimenting in the name of science i said yeah. yeah so uh if you look at things like psychedelics uh and microdosing in my own experience with that showed that wow this is actually leading to higher levels of flow and higher levels of creativity so why not do it uh I do think that when you start to get into sort of hard drugs and alcohol and pushing yourself to the limit where you're causing damage, I think in a lot of ways, at least in my experience, when I've drank in a situation where I was depressed about something or, or used some sort of drug to alter a state, whether that's smoking a cigarette or, or drinking, I think it's always because I've been trying to numb whatever I was feeling in some way.
3: Well, you know, for folks who do have depression, sometimes numbing that depression is the way out. Yeah. Unfortunately, all the things that numb depression are depressants. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, that's the, you know, that's the paradox right there. Um, just a personal note on my side. Um, I don't know if you know this or not. I actually, I did ayahuasca about 20 years ago or so. I think we've talked about this, but yeah, I did. Yeah, so I know it's your podcast, but I'm going to talk for a minute or so. Yeah, so about 20 years ago, I was working on a documentary about um, shamans of the world And we ended up going down to the Peruvian Amazon and documented just crazy things in the Amazon. And at the end of our session down there, the shaman we were working with basically said, I like you guys, tonight the ayahuasca. I'm not a spiritual person, so I did not have a spiritual experience. But I had a visual experience and I had an auditory experience where I was physically able to manipulate sound with my hands. Someone, that sounds amazing. It, it was incredible. Someone could sing or talk, and I could physically reach up, ground, grab the sound waves, move them, shift the pitch, cause them to warble, all sorts of things. Wow. Yeah, I, I think the technical term for that is synesthesia, yeah. where you're substituting one sense for another. Um, here's the thing. I found it incredibly enjoyable. I found it entertaining. I didn't find it therapeutic. It was just the sort of thing that I walked away from and said, oh, well, that was an interesting experience. I don't think I'll ever do it again, but yeah, that was kind of interesting.
0: And it's funny because a lot of people, when they have their ayahuasca experience, talk about the fact that it's kind of like doing 20 years of therapy in one night.
3: There are a lot of people talking about that, and we're going down a rabbit hole right now. Sure. Um, as a side note, I was actually just down in Peru about three weeks ago, and in one of the towns down there, it's become this hippie ayahuasca town, and there are literally posters and billboards on the telephone poles and on the walls like you know tonight the ayahuasca or you know check out the psychonauts down the street um, I don't know there I, I find it actually a bit disturbing that something that plays so heavily with your brain yeah has becoming has become a tourist activity
0: that is strange I think that the the da- downside to that is you can get yourself into situations that uh, you're really like It could be very detrimental. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And I know that was a complete and total (laughs) detour. Let's get back to an audience of one. You know, as we were talking about earlier, the three main concepts are your attention, your intent, and then also your consumption. What I like about this book, so there are are three kinds of prescriptive books out there. they are the books that basically tell you, well, here's what you have to do. Oh, hey, motorcycle. You know, here's what you have to do. And books like that tend to have the word like grind or crush or hustle in the title. And then there are the books, and they say, here's what you need to do, and here's how you're going to do it. And that's certainly an improvement. But the best books are, here's what you need to do, here's how you should do it, and here's why you should do it. And what I really appreciate about an audience of one being released August 7th, is you have so much why. Here is why you should do it. Talk to me about the research that went into this. I mean, how did you go down the rabbit hole of basically finding out where you should put your attention, why you should put your attention to certain areas? Yeah.
0: As far as the research goes, it was a combination of, of a bunch of different things. So I think one of the things that was really challenging about this book is uh, One is that it's really, in a lot of ways, a departure from my previous material, Mm -hmm. uh, which when you look at the the previous book, Unmistakable, it was a combination of of memoir slash self-help book. It was more than anything my story. Whereas this required a great deal of outside research, of of looking at uh, white papers, which are mind-numbing to read, mining them for one nugget that might make sense to include in the book and translating it into something that's much more digestible for a reader. Going back through a series of unmistakable creative interviews uh, with people who happen to be practitioners, who happen to be behavioral scientists, not only going back to their interviews, but in many cases going back and reading through their books as well to figure out what they had uh, talked about and what was really, really relevant here. And so it was, when we looked at it, we said, okay, what do we need to understand here? The thing is that so often when you have prescriptive nonfiction books, they don't back up what they say with evidence no. or they just say you should do something. Right. do with, this no, no and, reason. and crush it. But Oops, sorry. the the thing that I, I wanted to, to show was that I wanted to be able to back this up with evidence from people who had researched the very things that I was talking about. So let's go through one practical example yes. here that is very relevant to listeners. So probably my favorite one is the concept of the Progress Principle, which is based on the work of Teresa Amobili, who's a professor at Harvard. She wrote a book called The Progress Principle. So. One of the things that people will complain about is the fact that they don't feel motivated to do something or that they don't feel inspired. Well, it turns out the greatest motivator, the biggest motivator of all, is visible progress towards some sort of goal. And the cool thing about that is that you can determine what that visible progress looks like. It doesn't have to be, oh, I'm running a four-minute mile when I can barely get around the track. It can be the number of days I showed up to run, the number of minutes I ran per day. So if you think about it, the reason that that uh, famous story from Jerry Seinfeld about how to write jokes and... Expl- to basically- Explain that, please. So, okay, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, James Claire talked about this in an interview on Unmistakable Creative as well, but Jerry Seinfeld met this young comedian named Brad Isaacs. Brad Isaacs went to him and said, Mr. Seinfeld, how do I become a better comedian? And he said, well, tell you what. And he said, get a wall calendar, And every day, write jokes. And every day that you write a joke or write jokes, cross off an X. He said, after enough days in a row, you will actually have a chain. And the goal is to not break that chain. The reason that that was so powerful is because of the fact that that is representative of the progress principle. Just the fact that you're not breaking the chain is motivating enough for you to keep doing it it motivates you to keep showing up and to keep saying, okay, you know what, I don't want to break this chain. And seeing that progress before your eyes, you're going to keep coming back to do more and that sends your motivation through the roof. Perfect example. Uh, uh, So that's one example. Take something like writing a book. You start out with a blank Google Doc and eventually what you'll start to see is that the page is getting filled. You literally have gone from one page to two pages to if you get to the end of the week and you say, wow, I've accumulated five pages or six pages or I've accumulated seven pages, you went from a blank document to progress. Every time you fill out a moleskin notebook with writing, even if the writing isn't good, the fact that you're filling the pages is progress. So you want to measure your progress in a way that you can control, in a way that's totally achievable, and that's why I use things like word counts. That's why things like the Don't Break the Chain method work. Um, ultimately... That is our greatest motivation. That's just one of many of the pieces of research that went into this.
3: You know, we were talking about this on our walk earlier. It's all about the, the concept of cultivating discipline. Yeah. You know, basically establishing a, a practice, a routine, a ritual that's regular, that's consistent, that you do, you know, daily, weekly, whatever, where you do the work, even if you don't want to do the work.
0: Yeah. I, I, there's not... I don't wake up every day feeling like I want to write. <laughs> I wish... Uh, you know that was the case there are days when i when i don't feel like i write i I know right when i sit down i'm thinking to myself wow this is going to suck there's no question that this is going to suck but this is the commitment that i've made to myself and i'm going to follow through it because if i do funny enough sometimes those are the days when i've written some of my best work
3: so that's a bit of an odd question have you ever missed out on your thousand yeah oh you have oh yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I didn't do it this morning because it was 5.30 in the morning and my flight was 8 o'clock, so I had to get out of the house. I could have while I was sitting up there, and I probably will once you take off, or I might not. But uh, the thing that's, that's interesting is that people often, what they'll do is they may make it through five or six days in a row and be really pleased with themselves, but then because they miss a day, they assume the whole thing is over, whereas, you know... There's really no evidence to show that you can't maintain a habit long-term just because you miss one day.
3: What are we missing here? You know, we're talking about the concepts within the book. What is it that you really want to get out? What message do you want to deliver from the book?
0: Well, I think the, the real—ultimately what, what I want to see is I want to see a world in which people express their creativity and do it more consistently and more often, even if it won't necessarily lead to an audience, to a skill that they can put on their resume, or to fame. Because when those are the filters through which you make your choices about how you're going to express your creativity, you are limiting what is possible with your life and what is possible with your creativity. Because if your filter is, the only thing I'm going to do is a skill that I can put on my resume, or... The only thing worth doing is something that I can build an audience around or monetize. Just think about how many things wouldn't exist in the world today if people had said that to themselves before they started. Just think about it. If Frank Warren had said, if Post Secret doesn't reach a million people or go viral, there's no point in doing this. That wasn't the motivation. He just had this desire to express his creativity. He handed out 3,000 self-addressed stamped postcards on the streets of Washington, D.C., and look what's happened. He's created this beautiful project that has done wonderful things for people. He's raised awareness for suicide prevention. People have probably gotten a lot of healing from this simple project. Now imagine if he had said, oh, well I can't put this on my resume, I'm not sure I'm gonna monetize it, and I don't even know if there's gonna be an audience for it. Like, if that had been his default, we would be missing out on, on a great gift to the world if Humans of New York, when Brandon started it, if that had been his default, think about what the world would have missed out on. And if you look throughout history, in my mind, uh, from Oprah to David Bowie to many of the people that we talk about in this book, to Daft Punk, which is probably my favorite example in the book, nothing about what they did was about being commercial success wasn't the primary driver behind what they chose to do. And paradoxically, as a result, they all became commercially successful. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to be commercially successful. I'm not saying that you shouldn't build an audience, that you shouldn't promote your work, that you shouldn't monetize your work. What I am saying is that if those are the only filters that determine whether you'll do anything, then think about the amount of creative work that you have denied yourself
3: and the world as a result. Who is this book for and who is this book not for?
0: Okay. So I would say that this book is for anybody who has a desire to express themselves creatively on a regular basis and do it on a a, a, on a consistent scale. And and not only that, who is interested in creating volume and who is interested in developing a practice. The person that, is, that this book is not for is somebody who is looking for a formula that's going to lead to fame and riches.
3: Okay. What if, I'm a graphic designer, but I've got a corporate job and my job is to crank out you know, logos that are very specific to the corporate formatting and all that. Do I go my own
0: way? No, it's a, it's a great question and a fair question. I think that for somebody like that, whether you're a graphic designer at a job or you're a web designer... I think that you should have a set of projects that are your own, that have nothing to do with your work, that are purely for the sake of expressing your creativity. So, for example, when we did the, the Compass, the free ebook, we did, no intent there other than to make something that
3: we thought would be beautiful and Make cool, cool shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you could have called the book Make Cool Shit. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we've talked a lot about technology and, you know, just how technology works or can work as a distraction. What future tech excites you?
0: I think that in the last couple of weeks, I've done a really deep dive into all things artificial intelligence. And what I am finding is blowing my mind uh, from tools like Reason8.ai, which literally allow you to transcribe every meeting that you're in on, uh, every in-person meeting. And not only does it allow you to transcribe the meeting, it provides you with a summary and action items at the end of the meeting, and it's just there on your phone That's incredible, the fact that we could do that with AI, and we're just at the tip of the iceberg. I've seen SEO tools that are going to improve uh, using artificial intelligence and machine learning, which is going to make a lot of our jobs easier. We're going to be able to get more relevant traffic to our websites. A lot of the things that are difficult now because of the the technical nature involved in them are going to become much easier as a result of many of these tools, uh, which is a wonderful
3: thing. How do we prevent them from becoming another distraction?
0: Well, I don't think they're going to be another distraction, to be honest, because I think what they're going to do is they're going to liberate us to spend our time and effort on doing what matters most, which is our creative work. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. So It's funny. I could not believe that I did not know about this. I recently found a tool called CoSchedule for social media, which is just a straight-up plug for these guys, but a well-deserved one. I saw this and I was blown away because it was effectively a marketing dashboard where you could do everything from one dashboard, meaning you could promote all your social media posts, you could schedule everything. And not only that, they had a WordPress plugin where you could actually create a WordPress post or a blog post or a podcast. And in the plugin itself, when you publish the post, you could set it up to publish the thing that you want on social media on the same day. You're scheduling at the same time, so you're only having to do this thing once as opposed to doubling the work. And this is the tip of the iceberg. And based on on machine learning and and using algorithms, it basically determines the best time on the publish day and then publishes. Those are the kinds of things in my mind that are not going to be a distraction, but rather they're going to liberate us to do what matters most and to focus on what's most valuable, which is actually creating.
3: Okay, a few quick questions for you. Yeah. Um, What aspect of our culture or society today that's viewed as normal is gonna seem absolutely crazy, like batshit crazy in about 20 years or so?
0: Well, in an ideal world, uh, poverty. Uh, I think that when you have a, a large enough group of influential people who are talking about universal basic income, we have a, a guest coming up soon, it was a 2020 presidential candidate who uh, is running on the platform of universal basic income for all Americans. That would be a beautiful world if that is where we finally end up, is that poverty is an afterthought, uh, which seems completely normal. And I think many of the jobs we do today or the way we work today will also fundamentally change. The idea of eight hours a day doing one thing, I think that the way we work, the structure, the structure of the way we work will look very different. It, it, it won't make sense to spend eight to nine hours a day at an office ever again. I'm willing to bet... I I felt that for the longest time the eight-hour workday is nonsense, Uh, but I think more and more it's becoming true that value is not determined by the amount of time you put into something. It's determined by the intensity that you put into something.
3: What's something that you find really easy to do that most people find difficult? That's a good question.
0: I guess I, I, I don't find conducting interviews to be... This incredible challenge. I feel that it, it, it comes naturally to me. I, I've always said that I think I'm a much better interviewer than I am a writer. Uh, ironically, despite the fact really? that we're talking about a book, yeah. uh, and that was actually largely the impetus for the start of the podcast was the fact that Sid Savar basically it more or less told me that he thought I was a much better interviewer than writer. That I think has come much more naturally to me. I don't find that to be. I, I'm not intimidated by it. Oh. Getting up on stage and speaking is another one of the things okay. that I don't find difficult to do. I don't get nervous. I, I thrive in the environment. I think that also came
3: from my training as a musician. I was going to actually ask you why you think that is, because I'm not afraid to stand on a stage either.
0: Yeah, I, I think it was largely—so What this was one lesson that my band director drilled into my head over and over and over again— and I remember this was the determining factor between people who could hack it in all-state band and people who couldn't. I, I remember I had a, a girl in my class who was an incredibly talented flute player, but she could not, for the life of her, perform under pressure. Uh, the moment that she was in the spotlight with you know the pressure on her to audition, she fell apart. And I think it was because in her mind she felt that every mistake that she made. Uh, could be felt by the audience. Whereas I was taught that nobody knows when you mess up. So just keep going. And that never left me. And so as a result, I got very desensitized to how the audience is responding to what I'm doing when I'm in front of a large group of people.
3: Do you think you'll still have a podcast in 20 years?
0: That's a a good question. I don't know that it will be a podcast per se. Uh, One of the reasons that I've chosen to build this platform the way I have and why we have very much stuck to telling stories is because I never wanted to be constrained by the limitations of the medium. I wanted to be able to exceed the limitations of the medium in this case audio. But if you look at what we've done in terms of our body of work, we've taken that audio and we've cut it up in different formats and we have, uh, we, we've put it in a different formats. I mean, we've made animated shorts. We've transformed what we've done from a podcast into a, a two-day event, which you were the photographer for. Uh, it, it, you know, and, and we've produced books as a result. So I never wanted to be solely a podcaster. In fact, I, I thought the term was so limiting. Like, I, I think I, I did the keynote for Podcast Movement in 2014. And when they called me and asked if I would do it, I said, yes, I'll do it on one condition, that I don't have to talk about podcasting. And it was the keynote for Podcast Movement because I said, look – I see my work as very different than producing a podcast. Yes, that's what we happen to call the medium. But I think I'm a storyteller who uses podcasts to tell stories. That's really what I do.
1: I'm
3: just tossing questions out there. Yeah. Do you think it's better to be lucky or to be skillful? I would
0: much rather be skillful than be lucky. But... But... Look, we would... I think it's irresponsible for us to... For for us to have this conversation and to completely neglect the role that luck plays in the accomplishments of every single person who has been on this podcast, I think would be really, really closed-minded because there is an element of luck involved. I think it was really lucky that my editor at Penguin happened to have found my essay on the day that she returned to her job uh, at publishing when she came from Skillshare. There are a thousand other articles on Medium, probably more, that she could have found. I don't know why she stumbled on mine. That's luck. Yeah. You couldn't have planned that, and I I can't help but think about that moment in uh, David Letterman's new show where he's talking to Barack Obama, and Barack Obama asks uh, David Letterman a very similar question to the one that you have just asked me. He said, "You know, I've seen a lot of people in my life who've been successful in business, who've been successful in politics, who've been successful in entertainment, who." have worked really hard. he said, but there are a lot of people who have worked just as hard and put in just as much effort and they don't get those results. And so he asked David Letterman, he said, do you feel that luck has played a role in you getting to where you're at? And he said, I feel that I've been nothing but lucky. I don't know that I've been nothing but lucky. I think it worked, but I think it would be totally ridiculous to overlook the, the fact that luck played a role in this. I was lucky to start when we did in 2009. I was lucky to have gotten a head start on a trend 10 years before it started. Uh, I was lucky to have my editor stumble upon that article. So there were a lot of very serendipitous things that have happened in this process.
3: On a personal note, I think there's a lot to be said for being at the right place at the right time and also knowing the right people. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I personally go out of my way to know a lot of people. I mean, I really do. I, I reach out to a lot of folks. I do a lot of communication. I do a lot of email. And everything that's come my way has, become, has come my way because I know folks. Or I know someone who knows someone who might know somebody. And my name just gets passed around. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I remember somebody asked me for a photographer for a mastermind talks. And
3: I said, Matt, Matt Monroe. And it was great. I mean, yeah. it was amazing. And Tucker, Max, and everybody there. Yeah. Um, What books are you reading these days? My reading has changed a lot in the last month or so. Okay. Um,
0: And I think part of it is the the political climate has uh, created an interest not in politics per se, but in economics, ironically, which is is strange because I have a degree in environmental economics. But I I did not know that, by the way. Some of my recent reads, I I couldn't tell you anything about what I learned in in the degree. It was just a way to get the hell out of Berkeley, but— uh, I, read, I read a book recently called The Third Industrial Revolution by Jeremy Rifkin. I read another one called Saving Capitalism by Robert Reich, who was Bill Clinton's labor secretary. I read the Bill Clinton and Barack Obama biographies. Uh, I also read three books on the criminal justice system. So I think that my – so here's, here's what is driving my reading right now is one of the things that I've realized is that when you have a platform like the one that I've built here – You have the opportunity to do something impactful that goes beyond just creating content with it. You could actually create social change with it. Uh, And I feel that we have not done that and accomplished that yet. I think that that is the next iteration of where I want to take this. And that's why I've been trying to get people to come and talk to me about the subject of the criminal justice system based on what I've read, because I I want to raise awareness about this issue.
3: What are three books you think everyone should read?
0: Oh, that's that's easy. The deep uh, deep work by Cal Newport. Okay. Uh, the War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. <sighs> okay, this so is the third. So it's not that easy. You no, know, the third book. Well, I mean, The I Audience I of One by Srinivas. <laughs> <Serena Rath. laughs> I literally have hundreds of books on my shelf. So those two were, came to mind immediately, and I'm trying to think of what else has had a huge. Still writing by Danny Shapiro.
3: Oh, fantastic! Yeah. Um, do you read primarily nonfiction or fiction? I do.
0: I primarily read nonfiction. I, I should read more uh, fiction, but I, I don't. I don't know why. It's just not my jam.
3: Do you remember your last fiction book?
0: The Namesake by Jim Palahiri, probably. That's the one that, that comes to mind immediately. But
3: Yeah, I'm primarily a nonfiction reader myself. Yeah. But um, every now and then I just, you know, <laughs> you, you want a good detective novel. I've asked you this before. And you didn't really have an answer. Yeah. But I think you might have one this time. Sure. Uh, who are your heroes?
0: Well, you know, funny, funny enough, I, I never thought I would say this, but um, I have watched what my dad has done with his life at coming to, to, you know, leaving India when he was really young with no clue what he was getting himself into, starting a family, literally bootstrapped, Uh, making that work for as long as he did, having two kids, and then building a career and a life that, uh, by all accounts, is is wonderful. I mean, he's really, really done well for himself. And its I remember thinking there was a point at which I used to think, I was like, oh, I don't want uh, my parents' life. And I don't want my parents' life. But there was a point at which I didn't think it was a good life. And now I think that's not true. Now I think it's a, it's a, a really great life. I look at it and I'm like, wow, you guys have, You guys have done wonderful for yourselves.
3: When do you think that change in mindset took place and why?
0: Well, I think it's it's really largely in the last two years. Uh, Sometime last year, I think it was before my 39th birthday, I was having a conversation on Unmistakable Creative with Frank Ostaseski. And he was the director of the Zen Hospice Project, so naturally the subject of mortality came up. And I think a lot of people know this. I spent a lot of time living at home in the process of, of building Unmistakable Creative And one of the the results of that, of course, is that a lot of things in my life have not happened that I thought would happen by now, like getting married, having kids, a lot of the things that you think by the time you're 40 are likely to happen. And the concern was no longer that those things wouldn't happen or that they weren't going to happen on on a timeline. But what I started to really concern myself with was, or what became a very deep-seated fear was, wow, what if one or both of my parents has died by the time one of these milestones happens. And I mentioned this to Frank. I said, well, you're, you're the authority on death. So I figured this is what I'm fearing. Can you give me an answer to this? And you know what he told me? He said, well, he said, don't let that be the determining factor, uh, about how you, you know, how you choose to spend time with your parents. So now I go home for dinner every Sunday and I see my parents and we hang out and we drink wine and we have Indian food and my mom sends me home with like a week's (laughs) supply of food. Uh, but I, I've watched, I've watched the evolution of my dad as a, a struggling postdoctoral student, uh, having finished a PhD, raising a young family to really, I mean, building a life that is is really great. I mean, they're traveling now; they're uh, getting to see stuff, and, and you know, he's treating himself well. He's bought this beautiful car. I remember the, the first time I saw this; I was like, this is going to be your new car. I was like, wow. And it was the most decked out thing I'd ever seen. Even the dealer was like, "We've never seen somebody deck out this car like this." Uh, it was, and it was, it was a really cool moment because in my mind, I thought, "Well, that is well deserved. You've earned that." And to me, that's
3: heroic. Okay. Two final questions. One's going to be a little atypical. Yeah. How do we avoid being mistakable?
0: Well, I think the the way you avoid that is by having discernment, okay? Now, what do I mean by that? I think that all advice, and I've said this on a couple of other podcasts, Um, I was having this conversation with my friend Nikki Groom, who was recently a guest here. Uh, This is something that that has become very apparent to me because of the sheer volume of information that I consume and also the sheer volume of information that I create is that all advice is context-driven and context-dependent, okay? When you treat anybody's advice as gospel. For example, if you go and say, you know what, I'm going to treat Dave Ramsey's advice as gospel. Well, Dave Ramsey's advice, for the most part, from what I'm told, I don't know because I don't follow his content, but from what I've gathered is starve yourself until every debt is paid off, don't enjoy yourself, and live awfully. (laughs) Now, maybe that'll get you out of debt, but at what cost? If the cost is that you are a very unhappy person, you've become severely depressed and your health has suffered... Is that really a worthwhile reason to get out of – if that's what you're getting out of debt comes at, is the cost that it comes at, not worthwhile. And that doesn't take into account context because there are some people who really can't do that. If they did that, they would literally never leave their house. And I don't think that that's healthy. Now, the thing that happens is that because of the fact that we have social media, we have this pecking order, we get to see this parade of accomplishments on – social media and on the internet, we have this standard by which we measure our lives by. And once we measure our lives by the standard, the people who have set that standard, their advice turns into gospel rather than guidance. And when that becomes gospel, that's when we get into trouble because it goes from being guidance to dogma. And as a result, you become mistakable.
3: And as a side note, Dave Ramsey, if you are listening, uh, you can contact Srini Brown and uh, he will be glad to have you on the show. So Srini, last question. What is it that makes you unmistakable?
0: So I thought a lot about this because you had asked it to me two years ago. and, And funny enough, the answer hasn't changed. And that is perspective. As a result of this project, I have gotten a world-class education in everything from performance psychology to creativity to storytelling. And I've taken bits and pieces of everyone, uh, that really resonated with me. And I think that that really is, is what it comes down to. And inevitably what happens is when you consume this much information, uh, as much as I have and I've not only consumed it but I've also created the information that I've consumed at the same time which is a strange paradox it has to go somewhere and the result is that it's come out in my creative output it's come out in my writing it's shaped everything that I'm doing it's shaped the way I tell stories it's shaped my use of language it's shaped my views and my perspective on what matters and I think that that is what has made me unmistakable
3: very good before we close out the uh, podcast you are going on to creative live tomorrow yeah so just do a little bit of self-promotion here okay so i will be doing
0: a interview with chase jarvis live uh if for any of you who are in san francisco if you click on the link unmistakable creative.com slash sf or, or use that it'll i'll have it redirect you to the page where you can actually sign up and you can come and sit in on the studio audience with chase jarvis live if you're in san francisco but it'll also be available via live stream and uh in addition to that, I'm teaching a course based on Audience of One called "Designing Systems That Fuel Creativity" uh, for Creative Live, and that's going to be on Tuesday. So, is this a one day? Po- so, the course is a one day thing. The live interview is one hour. It's from five to seven p.m. Pacific time on Monday night, August sixth.
3: Monday night, August sixth. And with that, Srini, thank you so much for being on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, and we will come back. Thank you for
0: listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel?